Greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Malidoma Somme. Chapter 3, Grandfather's Funeral. Father, whom I had lost sight of because of the immense crowd and the ever-thickening darkness, suddenly appeared with half a dozen men behind him. He was moaning with despair and calling grandfather's name repeatedly, expressing his feelings so intensely it was as if someone had told him this would be his last public opportunity to release his grief. He was weeping, not only for grandfather but for all the unfinished griefs accumulated during his life. His tear-streaked face was distorted and the faces of those accompanying him sharing in the full force of his grief were no less ghastly. He walked slowly from east to west and back again, stopping now and then as if to try and digest the pain of this death that had befallen the beautiful. Then he would make a sudden violent turn as though his efforts to understand were frustrated by the powers of darkness themselves. He constantly called, Bakie, Bakie. Each summoning would end with a hoarse clearing of his throat, as if he hoped for a response. The six males whose duty it was to assist him participated discreetly in his sorrow while keeping an eye on him. At Dakara funerals, it is always necessary that the members of the immediate family be accompanied by a group of friends in order that they not injure themselves in the paroxysms paroxysms of their grief. And it is these very paroxysms that are necessary if one's grief is to be purged. Unlike people in the West, the Dagara believe it is terrible to suppress one's grief. Only by passionate expression can loss be tamed and assimilated into a form one can live with. The Dagara also believe that the dead have a right to collect their share of tears. A spirit who is not passionately grieved feels anger and disappointment, as if their right to be completely dead has been stolen from them. So, it would be improper for a villager to display the kind of restraint and solemnity seen at Western funerals. Uh, Let me say that line a bit more clearly. So, it would be improper for a villager to display the kind of restraint and solemnity seen at Western funerals. Although there are certain ritual forms of mourning, it is no less sincere for all that. Public grief is cleansing, of vital importance to the whole community, and people look forward to shedding tears the same way they look forward to their next meal. It was getting dark, as the pair of xylophones under the big baobab tree began their funeral dialogue, the drum responded with dry syncopated sounds. The chanters, standing behind the musicians, began their mournful songs, piercing the hearts of the crowd with sorrow. It was their job to provide a structure for the crowd to release their pent-up feelings. Each doleful phrase was followed by a huge howling, 
begun by the men and concluded by the women. It takes millions of tears to produce a flood capable of washing the dead to the realm of the ancestors, so refraining from weeping wrongs the dead. Rhythm and chanting crack open that part of the self that holds grief under control. But grief, unleashed without the help of ritual drummers, musicians, and chanters, runs the risk of producing another death. It is a force without a container. To the dead, it is useless energy, like food that is wasted while people go hungry. A constant, rhythmic call and response flowed between the chanters, the crowd, the male and female xylophones, and the drum. One chanter sang that an immense fire had been extinguished in the beer four compound and that the living must reawaken it. The male xylophone acquiesced in a woeful tone. The second chanter began another lament. It fell from his lips like a grenade into the thousands of hearts in the crowd, provoking an emotional explosion, pitiful and pathetic. The one experience that all humans share is grief, and it takes the right kind of poetry to set grief ablaze. This is why the griot chanter, the guardian of the mythopoetic doors of the tribe, is an invaluable engineer of emotion. Meanwhile, the xylophones and the drum began a frenetic race of rhythm and sound. In eerie harmony, the men in the crowd released their lamentations in a tearful song. Their voices made me shiver. The wailing of a grown-up male makes a child's world grow dim, but it also teaches the child about the adult world he will someday inhabit. An adult who cannot weep is a dangerous person who has forgotten the place emotion holds in a person's life. The general atmosphere was calamitous. Together, the voices of the mourners seemed to cast a malediction upon the dark cloud that had fallen over the Birifor family. Though funerals are a group activity, there is also space within them for individual initiative. The container created by ritual is big enough to satisfy everyone's needs. Occasionally, the men and women touched by sorrow would move out of the singing crowd. Their faces wet with tears, their arms outstretched as if to beg one last time for the return of the departed. Promptly, but gently, these individuals were escorted back into the thick of the crowd by friends and relatives. They would comply, crying helplessly and submissively to the great master of the universe who holds life and death in his hands. Within the immediate family of the Birifor clan, some of the more inconsolable would suddenly leap out of the crowd and run quickly as if pursued by a herd of ghosts. Drunk with pain, they were running to quicken the slow process of catharsis. When activated, emotion has a ceiling it must reach. At its apex, grief turns the body into a vessel of chaos. But it is just such a climactic chaos that can cleanse both the person 
and his or her spirit. The assistance of these wild runners would immediately launch a rescue behind them. The ensuing race looked like a mad escape from pathos. Since the mourner would stop and allow his pursuers to take hold of him or her, together they would conclude that bout of weeping and execute a mournful dance before rejoining the crowd. During a Dagara funeral ritual, all kinds of grief are released, not just regret for the departed, but all the pain of everyday life. The chanters, accompanied by the male xylophone, might sing that only an unmarried man has the right to cry for a meal, for there is nobody to serve him. The female xylophone would respond with her double note of agreement, or a man who lost his crop to bad weather could use the funeral space to release his complaint, chanting his loss in unison with the melody of the funeral. Meanwhile, the drum would broadcast its deafening rhythm, penetrating every heart in search of hidden miseries. The chanters were ecstatic, drunk with words. When the xylophones speak, everyone experiences the meaning of poetry. Slowly, by groups, the men begin to move out of the crowd and walk rhythmically in a line toward an open area. There they stopped and began to perform a kind of jiggling, carefully synchronized dance consisting of rhythmical movements of the torso and hands. It was as if something deep inside each person was being pulled out of its secret hiding place. The women followed the men, either in a column or in compact groups. Meanwhile, people tossed cowrie shells to the musicians. Cowries are the currency used for sacred occasions such as divinations, rituals, and marriage ceremonies. At the start of the dancing, the climactic first day of grandfather's funeral began to come to an end. Although some would dance far into the night, many of those who had been present since the middle of the day started leaving. One or two more songs and the bulk of the crowd of several hundred people would dissipate. Certain persons would take turns staying awake during the night. They were needed to assist the musicians who would not rest as long as the funeral rites continued. It was important that the music be kept going. Without music and chanting there is no funeral, no grief, and no death. Everybody else camped in the funeral space or if they lived nearby went to their homes. Even grievers must rest. Worn out, I walked to the house and went to sleep next to my snoring sister. The sun was high when I awoke. At the funeral circle, circle, the crowd was already as thick as the day before. In the compound kitchen, women were busy gossiping and laughing amid a thick cloud of aromatic smoke. The general atmosphere appeared festive. It was hot and everybody was sweating. Outside the compound, I could hear the music of the xylophones, the songs of the chanters, and the crowd's monotonous, persistent murmur. Everywhere, cries and laughter mixed to create an atmosphere of festive tragedy. The apex of grief had been reached by most the day before. The reality of death had been absorbed and people were more relaxed. A brightly colored mass of humans waited in the yard in front of the house. Some were talking, others were bartering, buying or selling grains, meat, fresh fruit and vegetables. This always happens at funerals, otherwise how would so many people get fed? 
Others simply sat in the burning sun, baking slowly, carelessly. Under the baobab tree, I saw a cozy little tent covered with colorful fabric. It had not been there the day before. Inside, Grandfather sat enthroned, facing east, his eyes closed. He had a grave air and wore an immense gala costume of immaculate white, crowned by a hat decorated with the symbol of the Birofors, two crocodiles and a chameleon. In this medicine garb, the ancestral scepter grasped in his left hand, he looked majestic. Near him was a bow and an immense quiver loaded with arrows to remind the people of his glorious warrior past. One of the arrows had been taken out and planted upside down in the ground. Those who knew about the magic of the pintul understood. Facing grandfather were numberless skulls, lions, panthers, buffaloes, and humans. These relics were there to remind those who had come to render ultimate homage to their great chief of grandfather's heroism. On either side of him stood two women elders with sticks made of fresh leaves to protect him against flies. At a brief distance from this palatial tent, the crowd was crying, laughing, and dancing in harmony with the liquid sound of the xylophones, male and female. In compliance with the theme of the funeral's second day, the chanters tirelessly spoke of the deeds of the departed one. They sang the genealogy of the Birofor from top to bottom, exulting in their oratorical art. As the crowd enthusiastically tossed cowrie shells in their direction, their narration of the deeds of the Birofor family became more and more elaborate. Some of the more emotionally sensitive mourners still responded to the energy of the chanters with weeping and wailing. People would run wild when they could no longer contain themselves. Then they would stop and enact the funeral dance until they were freed from their crisis and could return to the group. These activities lasted the entire day. People took turns standing near the musicians. They went to nearby villages to sing, to cry, and to dance their condolences or to dilute their own personal pain with that of the assembled crowd. Certain tribal situations obligate one by law to shed tears. Funerals are one of them. Anyone who doesn't cry on these occasions is subjected to a tornado of unpleasant gossip. Shedding tears in public is not difficult for women, for they can weep any time. Adult men, however, have a more difficult time expressing public grief, for they are forbidden to accept on special occasions. In fact, it is generally believed that if a man weeps outside of ritual context, the day will end in disaster. So, to shed tears, the man must call upon his dead for help by saying, Sanwai, my father half a dozen times while looking upward. These words will unfailingly help one to shed tears, especially when one is assisted by many other people. Many had come to grandfather's funeral in order to pay him a debt. Few were present who had not directly benefited from his generosity, 
which most often took the form of medical help or donations of food during times of shortages. For these indebted ones, the funeral was the perfect occasion to liberate themselves from their moral or material debts. Some were so fanatic in their grief that they had not returned to their homes since the first day. They wanted it to be absolutely clear to everybody that their attachment to the late chief was limitless, and they made sure they did everything they could in order to draw other people's attention. They planned to be there through the final moment when Grandfather's Zanu, his material, spiritual, and moral moral legacy would be shown. The second day of the funeral of an adult is usually awesome, not because of an increase in the level of common sorrow, but because of the demonstrations of esoteric art that so many among the tribe practice or aspire to practice. To be literate in an esoteric practice, one must belong to the school that teaches it and have the ability to keep silent about the school's secret practices. A promise is not enough because the very existence of the technology practiced by secret societies depends upon its members' silence. To the Dakara, the esoteric is a technology that is surrounded by secrecy. Those who know about it can own it only if they don't disclose it. For disclosure takes the power away. For example, some people are supposed to know how to heal elephantitis, the disease that makes your legs swell. If one person in the clan explains to anyone outside the clan how they manage to heal the disease, the potency of the medicine is immediately lost. If you cannot keep secrets, everyone in the tribe will soon know about it, because in a self-contained community, there is no anonymity. Everyone's track record is a matter of public record. The number of secret societies is proportional to the number of technologies that must be kept alive to make the tribe what it is. The second day of funerals is there for the day when magical practices are performed, either in memory of the deceased or against any undesirable elements within the tribe. Those who have quote-unquote gone private who have failed to obey the laws of nature in some way by withdrawing from proper social interaction or by practicing an esoteric art outside the moderating influence of a secret society and have not done penance are very vulnerable because their personal energies no longer flow in harmony with the general community energy. To go private is to break the laws of nature by which the community sustains itself. When a member of a secret society must practice his art publicly, those who have gone private must vacate the area or the force field of the art will be deadly to them. This sudden release of energy is like a purge. It will harm only those who are no longer in alignment with the community. So... Funerals are a time when hidden wrongdoings come to light. Justice is not affected by humans, but by nature. Unfortunately, not only the evildoers are punished. When persons who have gone private come to funerals to try their art, more often than not, 
they end up hurting innocent bystanders or one another. No one can practice tribal magical arts without a stable and supportive community. A stable community reflects the laws of nature and dances with them. Within this framework, art, because it celebrates the powers of the underworld, where the true nature of the natural order is administered by the gods, becomes the greatest healing tool that a community can have. When this support system is broken, art no longer functions the way it is supposed to. It becomes dangerous and in turn endangers the person practicing it. The magical arts are Dagara technology, a technology characterized by practicality. What is needed, what is useful. When one of our elders carves a double-headed serpent or an amphibious mammal, he is not just creating an image out of his imagination, but cooperating with the spirits of those beings for the maintenance of the natural order. Through this carving, spirits from the underworld manifest themselves to heal us in the world above and to repair our world. To the Dagara, art is the form in which spirits choose to exist with us here in this world. The most common technique utilized by people who have gone private is the lobir, plural lobi, lobier. Ah, I obviously might not be saying these words right. So, to the people whose language I am trying to speak, please accept my sincere apologies if I'm not saying it right. An invisible projectile known to warriors of the secret societies. A lobir can take any form. The most primitive is an object that is thrown into a person's body. The most advanced is a living thing ranging from a lobir the size of a worm to one as big as the practitioner can guide. Funerals provide the ideal context for all sorts of wizard wars. After each funeral celebration, a certain number of unfortunate men and women become gravely ill because they have been shot unaware by an enemy or have been hit by a lobir intended for somebody else. Those who attack people with lobi hide themselves and their doings. They may come to the funeral with strange feline skin bags on their backs containing a secret arsenal invisible to the uninformed eye, or they may mix with the singers unnoticed. The contents of these bags are kept secret because no one checks the contents of another person's bag. Most males, especially those who are directly related to the deceased, carry animal skin bags on their backs when they attend funerals. These bags are a kind of Dagara first aid kit and contain cowrie shells and medicine objects used for healing. Because funerals are not a closed circle, and since everybody is morally obligated to participate at one time or another, many different kinds of people show up. Most of the time, those who have gone private can harm their chosen victims without being noticed. With a simple movement of their hand, they can fire the invisible projectiles intended for their enemy. Once hit, this unfortunate person feels little pain. In fact, 
They experience nothing more than they need than the need to scratch. Later, however, the itching will become worse and worse until the person is finally debilitated and forced to leave the funeral circle in search of a healer. Why would someone who lives within a tribal community want to harm others in this way? Because such actions give pleasure to an evil person. As they say, this person is possessed by bad spirits. For those of you who have begun to construct a romantic picture of indigenous life, let this be a warning. For the indigenous world is not a place where everything flows in harmony, but one in which people must be constantly on the alert to detect and to correct imbalances and illnesses in both communal and individual life. Like bullets fired from the barrel of a gun, Lobi can work against anyone. Just as one must wear a bulletproof vest to ward off bullets, one can have a Lobi-proof vest magically placed over one's body. Unlike the bulletproof vest, which has its limitations, the Lobi the lobier proof vest is perfect. Once built into your body's energy system, it will be a part of you for the rest of your life. Moreover, anyone who shoots at a person thus protected could very well find himself being hit by his own lobier because this vest has the power to deflect the hostile projectile back to its sender. This is very dangerous for the evildoer, for as they say in my tribe, you can't defend yourself against your own bullet once it is returned to you. I remember a story my father once told me about a Lobier. He was attending a friend's funeral. In the middle of one of the cathartic communal dances, he was stung on the left hand by something that looked like a bee. This bee, however, tore straight through his skin and disappeared into his arm. My father could feel it moving around under his skin, its wings still whirring. The pain was so excruciating that he fell onto the dusty ground and passed out people carried him into the emergency room of the local healer who looked at the moving little bear and recognized its maker by the speed with which father's hand was swelling. After stilling the moving little bear, the healer made a tiny incision and chased the bee out by plunging an arrow into father's body. When the bee little bear flew out, he squashed it before it could escape. Father was given medicine to restore his strength. Before he was able to return to the funeral, he had to wash himself with a special potion designed to form a shield against such invisible projectiles. Since that day, Father has been extremely cautious about Lobier, even with his immunization. I have heard numerous similar reports, and when I was four years old, I saw my grandfather extract Lobier that looked like bones needles, feathers, and fur from the bodies of victims. A person in my tribe who ignores these warnings because he or she feels invulnerable is exhibiting a dangerous vanity. During the second day of grandfather's funeral, 
the Nimwie Den, those who have eyes, medicine society members, initiated people, and some people who had an exceptional eye for observation, kept tabs on what was happening around them so that they could take appropriate actions. An ordinary person cannot see Lovier. To have that ability, you either have to know how to use them or be immunized against them. To the average person, Lovier might look like something as harmless as the sun's rays, but to trained seers, they might, for example, appear as a multitude of tiny shooting stars traversing space at varying speeds. Some of the stars disappear when they hit a human body. If a person is struck by a lobeer, he or she will inevitably scratch where the thing has vanished, alerting the shooter that the lobeer has found its mark. But sometimes these minute stars land on the ground, endangering anyone who happens to walk on them. The unfortunate victim might leap into the air like a cat who has accidentally stepped on a hot coal, but there will be no further complications beyond a simple skin burn. A lobeer cannot hurt you if it is not specifically designed to hurt you. My father once explained that the reason some projectiles fail to hit their target is because the shooter has an incomplete knowledge of the victim's energy field. The missile becomes confused shortly after being fired. It falls on the ground and sometimes dies quickly thereafter. Those who are able to see them urinate on them when they fall into the ground, assuming they can do so without infringing on the laws of decency. To urinate on a lobeer is to kill it instantly. The thing catches fire and burns to ash. On the second day of grandfather's funeral, as I stood at the periphery of the circle of mourners, a brilliant object on the ground caught my attention. It looked like a conic crystal, so incandescent that to look at it directly made my eyes water. Intrigued and curious, I stared at it, trying to figure out what it was. Then I picked it up. It was not hot, but the palm of my right hand became white with light. I thought somebody had lost something valuable because the dances at funerals sometimes become so wild that objects fall out of people's pockets. I decided to show it to my father or my mother, whoever I saw first, so that it could be returned to its owner. But I could see neither of them in the seething crowd. I went to look for my mother in the compound. Outside the door to her room, I met my aunt and asked her if she knew my mother's whereabouts. I didn't understand her mumbled response, so I decided I would forward the object to Mother through her. When I showed the, si- the shiny object to my aunt, she let out a yell so loud that everyone in the compound was alerted. She zigzagged outside, too fat to be agile and too short to take long steps. Seized by sudden terror, I let the object fall. Hearing my aunt's cry, a crowd of people, including one of the elders, arrived at mother's door. All around me, people were asking, what is it? What is it? Those who were close enough to see the shiny thing were too petrified to answer. The elder ordered everyone to step back. Then he picked up the shiny thing with his left hand, grabbed me with the other, and led me into grandfather's room. There I found my father. 
seated in the middle of a group of elders who were gesturing and speaking. They stopped when we entered the room. I ran and sat next to Father and started telling him what had happened. In the meantime, the old man who had taken the shiny object dropped it into one of the many pots of magical concoctions sitting around the room. As soon as the object hit the liquid in the pot, the liquid began to boil frenetically as though there were a fire under the pot. Everybody was staring at me. I was fascinated by what the shiny thing was doing to the liquid. My father broke the heavy silence. Never again pick up these things when you find them. Do not interfere with him, ordered a tiny old man with a beard like a goat's. You cannot tell what this boy can do with these fearful things. He already has a natural immunity against them, and he can see them. Why not tell him what he should do with them instead of pretending that there is some mystery here? Another old man, who had been chewing tobacco since I entered, spat and answered, With children, you are never quite sure what to teach them and what not to. Tomorrow, he might forget what he knows today. Then what will happen? The little old man did not seem to like this fellow's observation. He too spat and growled in response, Keep your tongue where it is. How do you know what this boy does not know? His siura has shielded him and everyone around him from harm. He'll grow into knowledge without your help. Weren't you here yesterday? Don't you remember? Then let me tell you, this boy is the reincarnation of Birifor himself. Nothing is going to happen, or Birifor is not the man we have all known him to be. This kid is the original possessor, the original possessor of the secret we are using so badly today. It's he who gave it to Bakai, the dead man we are honoring. Good talk, said another man. He was younger than the others. His eyes were red and extremely mobile, and his teeth had turned black and red through years of addiction to tobacco. They clacked softly against one another like cola nuts as he spoke. Nobody answered. Nobody dared to confront him. This man's name was Guiso, and his power was regarded with the same deep respect as grandfather's had been when he was alive. Even then, Guiso was on my side, and years later he would be the person who would help me reconstruct most of the events of Grandfather's funeral. Now, he stood up, stretched noisily, and went to the pot where the object had been placed. The liquid had stopped boiling. Plunging in his hand, he brought the object out. It was not shiny anymore, but had turned to charcoal. He inspected it for a long while, then declared, This is the work of Dadier. He makes these kinds of things. But what was it doing on the ground? Perhaps he sold it to a client who does not know how to shoot. I have warned him time and again about this evil practice. He has ruined himself by allowing this to fall into my hands. He then blew on the object. As if by enchantment, it became air. Then he resumed his seat and said to the man who had brought me into Grandfather's room, Thank you, Kiperi, for what you just did. You can leave now. In a gesture of acknowledgement, Kiperi stood up, bowed to the old man, and left the room. Exhausted by my adventure, I went over to Grandfather's bed, stretched out, stretched out and soon fell into a deep sleep.
On the third day of the funeral, the crowd was thicker than ever. It had rained the night before, but now the sun was bright in a cloudless sky. Early in the morning, the elders of the village had a meeting in grandfather's room. I could sense the excitement of the people all around me as if something were about to happen. The tension of the last two days had receded. People were singing and dancing, visibly relaxed, enjoying the last day of the funeral by celebrating rather than mourning. The catharsis they had been seeking over the last couple of days had been found, and groups were dancing joyfully as if grandfather had never died. The musicians, tireless, were now playing merrier tunes. The male xylophone sang, We made it through the night. He made it through to the shore of the spirits. Now, let the departed one be the nourisher of the power we carry. To this, the female xylophone echoed, Death is life and life is death. The dead live while the living die. Living or dying, we have joy. too had stopped aiming their pointed words at people's hearts. In a merrier mood now, they were singing comic songs. Toward mid-morning, musicians, dancers, and singers all stopped. The crowd around the pa'ala, where grandfather was still sitting, was cleared. One could now see grandfather seated, calmly as though unconcerned about the goings-on but at the same time looking attentive and slightly defiant about the ceremony on his behalf. After three days, most corpses began to exhale embarrassing smells and to degenerate rapidly. Grandfather, on the contrary, appeared freshly dead. Except for his forward-bent head, one might think that he was merely playing a trick on us. The crowd was obviously waiting for something to happen. They faced the entrance of the gate to the compound, 200 feet to the north. I found my way through the middle of this crush of people and went in search of my aunt who was selling freshly fried bean cakes. She served me a few in a calabash. I sat next to her and ate. Before long, we heard a noise like a thunderstorm. This sound was followed by a long procession of elders. They came out of the main gate dressed in colorful ceremonial outfits of different styles, each one describing the specialties of its wearer. Each elder wore a tall regal hat with seven points like a king's crown. On one side of these hats, a chameleon was brightly embroidered, the emblem of transformation and service. On the other side was a bird, which signaled a messenger. On the front of these hats was a big star, which symbolized that we were one people. The most outstanding part of their costumes were their large, impressive cloaks, which were intricately embroidered around the chest area with dozens of images. On the back of each cloak was the tribal emblem, a cross in the middle of a square. On either side were images expressing the function of each medicine man. Most of the healers held a scepter in one hand, signifying the special nature of their powers. Others had this symbol painted on their outfits. The scepters resembled strangely sculpted amphibious forms, condombili, contombili, and the tails of mysterious animals. 
Each scepter was smartly decorated with cowrie shells or arabesque beads, patterned to symbolize the nature of each healer's secret. The medicine men and healers were solemn, and their appearance imposed silence upon the crowd. The people stood transfixed, contemplating these men of power of the Dagara tribe as if they were seeing them for the first time. The healers walked in a line to the Paala, silently circled it three times, then returned to the compound. A hush fell over the crowd. The Zanu ceremony, the enactment of grandfather's spiritual and moral legacy was about to begin. The intensity of this ceremony was all the more exceptional because the dead man had been a sacred healer and a leader. The crowd anticipated that something unprecedented would happen, something magical. Suddenly, slowly and methodically, someone blew a wele, a hunting whistle. Its sharp notes penetrated every ear. In the special language of hunters, it proclaimed that a herd of Walpiel deer was heading southwest, straight toward the compound. The whistle attempted to count their number. The whistle attempted to count their number, gave up after the first dozen, then talked of their speed, making the sound that meant they are running chest down, which is the position that Walpiel run in when they are coming fast. The whistle went on to describe their sizes, but nobody was paying attention anymore for behind the crowd. A little distance away, a cloud of dust darkened the sky and everyone could feel the rhythmical cadence of hooves pounding the ground. Then the yell of a woman, echoed by many others in the outer part of the crowd, announced the nearness of the herd. Finally, we could see them clearly, heads bent, growling like exhausted war horses in the midst of a battle. The wild peels rushed toward us tossing their branch-like horns in the air in front of them. Unmindful of their proximity to such a huge mass of humans, they charged the crowd. A general alarm ensued. People ran for their lives, screaming unintelligibly in search of hiding places. Some men hid behind trees, others realizing the uselessness of any attempt to confront these ferocious animals, hid just behind the huge baobab tree trunk outside the compound. The most courageous among the crowd never moved. These few individuals knew that the herd was created and being controlled from grandfather's room, where only a few minutes ago the council of elders and healers had gone. The materialization of this herd was a perfect illusion. These animals were as harmless as the air, yet the sound of their stampeding hoofs pounding on the ground was growing deafening as the distance between the crowd and the herd narrowed. Under such conditions, there was an exceptional demand upon the will of those who had chosen not to move one inch from where they were. I was watching this scene from the sidelines next to my aunt Pony. The herd finally ran directly into the crowd and with a cavernous noise melted away into the air. Everything became quiet. Before anyone had a chance to figure out what had happened, the elders and healers appeared in the thick of the crowd as if by enchantment and rallied around the pa'ala of grandfather. They stood and gave a moment of piety to the dead, then walked back into the compound in a line. The medicine men created the illusion of this herd of wild beasts 
because of grandfather's close relationship as hunter and healer to the animal world. They wished to bring this world into the funeral ritual. Even though the villagers knew that what they were seeing was an illusion, it took a great deal of self-control to remember that. The last Boboro medicine man had barely disappeared into the compound when all of a sudden there was a piercing noise right above our heads. All eyes looked up at the sky searching for its source. There was light circling Grandfather's Pa'ala, about 300 meters above him. The arrow's speed was so dazzling that it had not that had it not been for its luminosity and the dark trail of steam it left behind, nobody would have seen it. The arrow of light circled three times around the pa'ala, then shot straight into the midst of the crowd, which instinctively tried to make space. The arrow sank into the wet ground and reappeared 20 meters away, shooting up from between the legs of a woman who was seated with her back toward the compound. The woman leaped to her feet and executed a bizarre dance. Petrified by terror, she raced toward the crowd with her arms upraised, yelling. No one seemed to be concerned for her, nor did anyone laugh at her. They had seen these kinds of scenes countless times. And besides, women in intense grief act like that. After this first surprise, the arrow of light shot once more into the sky then arched toward the northern horizon where it was quickly swallowed out of sight. Soon its whistling was heard again, this time from the south, as if in that short time it had circled the earth. As it neared the crowd, it began to slow down and lose altitude. Finally, it flew straight toward the house where the elders and healers were, entered through the wall, and disappeared. The crowd greeted the end of this demonstration with a thunder of kuyids, a shrieking sound that women often emit in lieu of applause. The funeral participants had barely recovered from the display of the magical arrow when the next wonder appeared. Because my grandfather had been a very great medicine man and the leader of our family, it was fitting that the supernaturals who had befriended him and aided him in his work would come to pay their last respects. Within the world of the Dagara, so closely aligned with the worlds of nature and the worlds of the spirit. These beings are commonly seen, just as angels and other heavenly apparitions were once commonly experienced by devout Christians in the West. Approaching Grandfather's Pa'ala from the north came a strange group of beings, short, red creatures who looked like humans. They had pointed ears and were two feet tall at most, with genitals so long they had to roll them around their necks and hair so long it touched the ground. As they neared the crowd, Aunt Pony brought her hands to her mouth and mumbled fearfully, Oh, the contumbili. Women hid behind their husbands. Men lowered their heads, too frightened to run. The boburo and healers stayed out of sight in Grandfather's room. Ignoring the crowd, these bizarre beings moved toward Grandfather's Pa'ala and gathered around it in a semicircle, in a semicircle with an air of solemn homage. My grandfather had told me many stories about these beings, but this was the first time I had actually seen any of them. Though they looked tiny and helpless, the Kontumbili are the strongest, most intelligent beings God ever created. 
grandfather told me they are part of what he called the universal consciousness. But even though they are immeasurably intelligent, like us, they too do not know where God is. They come from a world called Kontonteg, a fine place, far bigger than our earth, yet very difficult to locate in time and space. They make their homes in in illusionary caves that serve as the portals between our world and theirs. When the Boburo and healers in our tribe need their counsel, they perform rituals in caves to access the, to access the world of the Kontombili. The Kontombili, the Kontombili, they very long, Grandfather once told me. They can live as long as they want, but they can die when they are ready. We owe them most of the magic we know and much of our joy. For example, before we met them, we did not know how to brew millet beer. One day, one of our women met a condomble when she was out in the bush hunting for dry wood. He gave her a calabash full of a foamy liquid and when she drank it, she was delighted. She felt merry and wanted to sing. When she asked the condomble what she was drinking, he said it was dan, made from millet grains. I am saying it but I am not saying anything, the condomble chanted. For three days and two nights, let the grain soak in water under firm ground. I'm saying it, but I'm not saying anything. On the third day, bring the wet grain into air below the sky and let it rest below a blanket of green leaves. For another three days, I'm saying it, but I'm not saying anything. Then separate the grains one from the other slowly and let the sun dry them slowly. I'm saying it, but I'm not saying anything. Pound the dry grains, cook the meal for two days and drain. Take the juice and add some ferment. Let it mix and foam. I'm saying it, but I'm not saying anything. When the juice is under a white foaming blanket, enjoy the whole of it. I said it, but I didn't say anything. The woman went home and did as she was told. And since then, we have Dan. Many other secrets were thus divulged to selected villagers in the same way. Kontombili soon became the village consultants. Day and night, they would wait in the bush, crossing the frontiers between the worlds under various disguises, waiting for humans to come to them. Their sudden appearance at the funeral was an indication that they knew Grandfather very well and were coming to pay their respects to a great leader. Ignoring the people around them, they marched back and forth between the Pa'ala and the room where the Boburu and healers were housed, as if participating in a ritual of mystic communication with the dead. After a quarter of an hour, apparently satisfied, they marched off into the bush without addressing a word to anybody and disappeared behind the first tree they came to. Before the burial, the grave must be mo'u, literally looked into, looked into, a ceremony that allows a viewing of the final residence of the dead. This ritual is for children only. They get the opportunity to see what a grave is like and to remember the last resting place of a person of status. For years afterward, they will always be able to recall the name of the person whose grave they looked into. And this helps determine how much time has passed since then. For the Dakara, the child's memory works better than the adult's. If you trust something important to a child, 
He or she will keep it as long as he or she draws breath. There are also rituals that stimulate the child's power to store and recall things. One of the reasons why our elders are important to us is because the child within the elder is able to constantly retrieve things from the past that the community needs. The elder also knows how to transfer what he or she knows to the youth so that there is a continuity of special knowledge. Dozens of children had been gathered for the occasion. Guided by adults, they went in groups of five or ten to spend a few minutes at grandfather's grave. I was part of the last group. I walked to the opening along with six other children from the house. The grave was noticeable only by the huge amount of dirt surrounding it. The hole itself was a tiny incision cut into the ground that, as it went deeper, became wider and wider. Its entrance was circular and no more than 10 inches in diameter. I wondered how they could fit a human body through such a narrow path, but apparently no corpse is too big for this tiny entrance. In the meantime, the musicians had carried their instruments closer to the pa'ala and were busy tuning them. In small groups of 10 to 15, Women began singing the celebration songs of harvest ordinarily heard only at the New Year's festival. Most grief ceremonies end in celebration. After such strenuous mourning, the human psyche needs to play. The women sang in a circle, clapping their hands. In the center, one or two of them would execute complicated dance steps, then let themselves fall into the hands of two or three other women. Each woman would then be lifted up. Then, at the exact moment the song ended, they would be released and land gracefully in the middle of the circle. Then everything would begin over again, with new women in the center. The women soon broke off their dance to join the musicians who had finished tuning up and agreed on a song. This time, the music had a more festive rhythm, contrasting with the tense and mournful music they had been playing for the past two and a half days. They began with a sia tune, a song with a heavily cadenced rhythm that had the effect of being both physically demanding, yet relaxing at the same time as the musicians became more and more involved with the beat. The female xylophone began singing playfully. My dog caught an antelope, but whoever saw a headless dog catch an antelope? Led by the head dancer, men and women joined in the festivities around the funeral pa'ala, singing and dancing. The head dancer held a cow tail in his hand, which he swung comically while he himself looked very serious. The drummer who led the rhythm was sweating under his dusty Balbir village shirt, and soon the whole pa'ala was surrounded by a cloud of dust while the air smelled of sweat. It was then that the Boburo and healers, who had not appeared since their last display of magic, marched out of the compound. With a solemn air, they moved toward the dancing circle. Everybody stopped at once. Singers, drummers, musicians, and dancers. There was complete silence. The women moved east and the men rallied west, leaving the musicians in the middle ground next to the pa'ala. The Boburo and healers arrived and stood in front of Grandfather. The time had come for the ultimate homage. The musicians began a tuning ritual. 
testing their instruments nervously. Then the Boburo and healers began the closing ritual as one of them intoned, We may never hear the thunder come out of the lion's mouth. We may never see his claws, the claws that once served the peace of our village. How much longer can we survive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another medicine man, a dwarf, too small to have been seen before, leaped out of the group and lifted his scepter. In a loud voice, he responded, Lightning brings the tone of coming thunder, but thunder came alone without his messenger, or the wrath of nature, yeah, 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 yeah. First, the men began to sing, and soon the song was transmitted through the entire crowd. Once again, people began to weep, tears streaming from their eyes. A man let out a long, lamenting cry that was drowned out by many others and carried over into the women's thrilling voices. The male xylophone, the male xylophone chose that crucial time to begin a mournful song known by the crowd. Pete, pele, 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 bomweri kai. Empty, 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 the granary broke with the millet. The leaves of the branches, the branches of the tree, all fed on the roots. Now leaves without branches, branches without roots. How do you stay alive? The lead medicine man's voice rose above the xylophone, and his words filled the air with doom. The dwarf jumped out of the circle once more and intoned, The circle has lost its guide. His breath flew out. Now before four is waiting to be a ghost. Ah, this compound is lost, yea. Once again, the utterance was followed by a mournful wail begun by the group of men and sustained by the women. It died away into oblivion as the crowd's attention was directed toward the refrain of the xylophone, mourning the tension of this last moment. The gravediggers broke into the circle around the pa'ala and gently carried grandfather's body away from the weeping circle to the grave. For a while, the ritual of farewell continued in front of the empty pa'ala. It was hot, though the sun was declining toward evening. The funeral ground emptied slowly until there were only a few people left to attend to the last business. The gravediggers returned. The routines of everyday life resumed. A few women still wept as if incapable of consolation. Their high-pitched wailing rose into the dusty air. Without resistance, I followed Aunt Pony and her bean cake equipment into the yard empty of people, where the quiet spoke as eloquently as speech itself. Grandfather had really died. A new era had begun.